consistency is really the secret to LinkedIn. Showing up on the regular predictable basis on a, in a whatever that cadence happens to be for your audience might be a little bit different, but showing up weekly or every, you know, a couple times a week in smaller pieces feels like the way to get traction on this platform. You know, Adam, it's, it's funny. LinkedIn is growing in importance to a lot of our listeners. You actually talked about that in this episode, but in a lot of ways, at least in comparison, maybe to some other social media platforms, it's still a little bit black box. And as our guest this week, Amber Naslin, senior content consultant for LinkedIn says, consistency really is the key. It is. And this is uh, a 40 minute crash course in the secrets of LinkedIn. Amber is, is so smart, not just on LinkedIn, but Jay, I know you, you both wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago and her, her personality, her enthusiasm, her knowledge of LinkedIn, her knowledge of the space really shares some, some great nuggets of wisdom on how to be a better social media practitioner, but also towards the end, kind of a bit of a pivot. And we talk about how we can be better social media consumers. Absolutely. One of my favorite episodes in a long time, not just because Amber is, as she likes to call it, my book spouse. Uh, we uh, we uh, produced a book together a bit ago. It, this this really is. If you've ever even thought about using LinkedIn, and you probably have if you're listening to this show, you got to give this one a listen. It's, uh, it's a super good one. Uh, before we get to Amber, just a quick acknowledgement of our amazing sponsors here on the Social Pros Podcast. We would not be here were it not for them. Uh, starting, of course, with Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Uh, Adam is a big part of their team over there. They've got a great new ebook that I've been telling you about for a couple of weeks now. I want you to download it before we change it out. It's called 50 Social Media Best Practices. 50 Social Media Best Practices. That sounds like something you might want to know. It takes a lot of the things that Adam and I talk about here on the show, puts it into ebook form. You can grab it. Won't cost you a thing. I'm not even going to give you a bunch of hassle. You don't have to fill out that long of a form. Go to bit.ly slash tips, T-I-P-S, 50 social. I'm going to give that to you again bit.ly slash T-I-P-S five zero social. All lowercase, grab that right now. 50 social media best practices from Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Also this week, show brought to you by our pals at Emma, terrific email service provider down there in Nashville, Tennessee. Got a nice platform, help you send great emails, help you test your emails, help you do a little marketing automation, help you send emails that look pretty nice too. They're big on design down there at Emma. But I got to tell you, the thing I like best about Emma is not just their ability to send the right email at the right time to the right person, but sometimes you need some help, right? Email can, you know, get a little bit uh, complicated from time to time, and you can actually get a hold of somebody at Emma, and they will talk to you and help you and make sure that it goes right. It's not just like a DIY, click here for a live chat kind of thing. They've got real people, which I really appreciate. Go to my emma.com slash j is awesome my emma.com slash j jay is awesome to learn more about how emma can help you send better email whether that's your job in your company or the job of somebody maybe across the hall let's get right into it this week on the social pros podcast it's amber naslin senior content consultant for linkedin 
Ladies and gentlemen, I could not be more excited to have on this week's episode of the Social Pros Podcast, a person who means a great deal to me, my book spouse, the co-author of the very first book that we worked on together called The Now Revolution. I forget the very long and somewhat confusing subtitle. I'd have to check <laughs> uh, my bookshelf to piece that together. But Amber Cadabra, Amber Naslin is here on the program this week. She is a senior content consultant at LinkedIn. Amber, my friend, welcome to the Social Pros. How is it going? I'm so happy to be here. I feel like it's, we should have done this a long time ago, but hot. I know. This is going to be a high energy show. I'm just it is. Predict it right. is. But it's Friday the, uh, when we're recording this, gate. folks. It's, <laughs> it's Friday. It's been a long... Well, and Jay and I are practically family at this point, even though I never see him. So I know. I know. Yeah, I tell you what, it's true. When you write a book together, that's like a crucible. That's, that's like, you know, it's like, remember that time when we were in Nam? That, that's that's kind of... <laughs> That's a firewalk right there. Uh, yeah, it is like a firewalk. Exactly. All right. So here's what I want to ask to start off with. So as I understand it, you've got a whole squad there at LinkedIn, you and a bunch of other smarty pants. And if a company, presumably B2B in most cases, uh, wants to get better at content marketing, then if they spend some money or some sort of magic uh, formula, then they get access to you. Is that how that works? Yeah, you're exactly right. So uh, our team is sort of a subject matter expert team that is a service we provide to our, our most strategic advertising customers. It doesn't cost them any money, um, but it's something that we do just as like a customer success vehicle to try to set them up for success, make sure they're taking advantage of all the things that they can take advantage of and getting some input from people who've been in the trenches, you know, so we're not part of the, we work in the sales organization, but we don't carry quotas. We don't have anything like that to worry about. Our job is really just to help impart our knowledge to them and hopefully make them more successful on our platform. Are those relationships with those clients then ongoing or do you sort of work with them a little bit at the beginning and be like, okay, here's what you should do. Godspeed. Yeah, it really varies. It's a little bit of both. So some of our, you know, biggest and most strategic clients, a lot of times we're plugged in sort of ongoing and drop in and step out depending on when they need us. Um, other clients really just need us to come in and give them a good kind of foundation to build from. And then we won't work with them again in the future. It really depends on the relationship the salespeople have and, the, and how savvy that, and confident that customer feels with what they're doing on LinkedIn. And sometimes like I've worked with a client, you know, uh, once and then two years later, I work with them again mm -hmm. because so much changes internal, you know, teams change and priorities change. So sometimes we'll fly back in when some of the, that kind of stuff changes. And as you mentioned, people get access to you and the team based on a, an, an advertising spend threshold. Do you and your team of content consultants also provide counsel on paid LinkedIn spend and, and tactics or does sort of the sales team or somebody else do that? And you're really more like, look, make the content great. Somebody else can figure out how to get it seen. Yeah, we do. Um, we intersect definitely with the paid strategy. I wouldn't say at the nuts and bolts level, you know, our, our customer success managers are really good at like getting in campaign manager and optimizing bids for campaigns or sure. making sure it's like creative the right way. But what we're really, we sort of are sandwiched in between why you should be doing LinkedIn at all and how to do it at a super tactical level. We're somewhere in between kind of trying to help them understand broader content strategy, but also how that trickles down to LinkedIn and how to build content that works for our audience and our platform, because we have some things that are unique about the way LinkedIn rolls. So our job is to help translate that 
and ultimately the tactical optimization then happens like with the with the pods and the teams that work directly with the clients. Adam, it sounds a little bit like what Amber and her team are doing is is similar to what you do as executive strategist at Salesforce, helping clients who are using Social Studio to maximize the effectiveness of that software. Is that true or am I mischaracterizing it? No, I, I think I think that's a great characterization. And Amber, one of the things I'm I'm most curious about is of the, the, the advice and counsel that you're providing to your customers, how much of it is more tactical? Like here is some new products and some new content. Oh, I thought you were going to ask how much of it use. is true, which is a better question. <laughs> well, I could do that. <laughs> how much of what you say is accurate, Amber? Yeah. Is, yeah. But, but in, truly, how much of is it what you're sharing is more strategic and more kind of content oriented? And how much is it more tactical? Here's some new boxes. Here's some new ways to improve Lyft, et cetera. Yeah, I would say it's uh, 75 to 80% strategic. That's the intent of our team. We do occasionally wander into the weeds a little bit when it comes to things like creative best practices, like helping people understand that their imagery needs to be designed for a feed that's predominantly mobile, that you need to think about diversifying media and having video as well as static images. So we talk a little bit about that from a more of a best practices standpoint, but a lot of it is really dependent on the maturity level of the client that we're working with. So I, you know, I work with some very sophisticated companies who have been doing content for a long time and don't need me to tell them all the tactical stuff. And then I work with companies in some more slow to adopt industries, let's say, and they are usually really worried about the very basic blocking and tackling stuff. So we really adapt what we do to the maturity level of our client more than anything else. I don't want to lead the witness here, but you've said two things that I think lead to something. First, you mentioned you're seeing more and more uh, advertisers and content providers that are using LinkedIn more than, than they had in the past, if, if at all. Mm-hmm. And the second thing you said that the audience uh, of, of the LinkedIn user is, is changing. I will tell you that literally in the past two weeks, both at Dreamforce this last week where I just got back and, uh, and the week before, sitting down with at least a half a dozen to a dozen social media marketers and communicators who have said that LinkedIn is either their number one or number two platform. And Amber, that's not something they would have said a year or two ago. So I'm curious how that audience is changing. Yeah, I feel like it's really interesting because, of course, I came from more the partner and and client side of LinkedIn. So I sort of watched that evolution. And now stepping into this role internally, I feel like our DNA is very much the jobs and careers platform a lot of people thought of us as. But increasingly, as communities, I think especially of business professionals, are looking for a place where they can find high value content that is directed at a business audience or intended for that. Um, When you survey LinkedIn members, what they'll tell you is they come to LinkedIn with a purpose more than they do any other social network. So they don't spend time just mindlessly scrolling. There's intent behind what they do. They come to learn, they come to be inspired, they come to Um, Yes, connect and network with other professionals, but that hunger for education and for valuable content is driving a certain type of audience and a certain culture on the platform that I think has really been the dark horse that has shown up in the last couple of years in a really meaningful way. And it's been fun to be part of 
what I would consider a pretty high growth, high traction period for LinkedIn. Amber, one of the things that I find works best on LinkedIn in our own work as consultants at Convince to Convert is LinkedIn from an episodic perspective, putting together a LinkedIn show, and I'm throwing up my air quotes here for the podcast listeners of some sort, whether it's uh, Alan Gannett's you know, regular videos that he shoots two-minute kind of business tips or, or longer-form LinkedIn live broadcasts that people are executing, but saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to have an editorial calendar for LinkedIn, which combines sort of content and social and we're going to do a thing every Tuesday, which is this, or every Friday is going to be an excerpt of the Social Pros podcast, which you can absolutely find on LinkedIn. Do you find that working well also from your perspective, or do you have a lot of clients still kind of trying to do the, the mother of all eBooks, which is going to happen sort of one time? Um, we see a fair bit of both. And what I will tell you is I do think in my, my professional opinion that the episodic content is more successful um, mostly because I think there is a certain amount of fatigue around the big, heavy hitting assets and making those more accessible through um, more derivative content. And I, what I'm always telling people is consistency is really the secret to LinkedIn. Showing up on the regular predictable basis on a, in a whatever that cadence happens to be for your audience might be a little bit different, but showing up weekly or every, you know, a couple times a week in smaller pieces feels like the way to get traction on this platform. And it's a really big shift for a lot of these companies who are used to um, the, the guidance we've put out for many years, which is have a big asset, which isn't wrong, you know, like have a big content asset and then like break it up into a bunch of stuff. I think that still works. But I think people are used to now, they build the big ebook and then they just keep pushing the huge asset and wondering why over time uh, the conversions don't happen. And I, there's a certain amount of fatigue for that stuff. So if you're gonna build the giant rock, you have to be willing to do the work to do the episodic or I call it interstitial content in between so that people get little tastes of things along the way, not necessarily just big gulps. Well, and as the as the unit of measure of content goes down, not up, right? The average piece of content is shorter, faster, tighter than ever before. It's just the nature of the world that we live in. There becomes a finite number of people who will ever want to read a 36-page ebook. I don't yeah. care what it is. It could be hmm. the cure for cancer. It could be whatever it is. That's why we you know, encourage people to download the amazing resources from Salesforce Marketing Cloud. I told you about at the beginning of the show. But there is, that, that, that audience is not, is not limitless, right? You know, at some right. point, people are like, I would like to know that thing, but right. I don't want to know that thing in that format because that format is just too much for me. And I will argue that as we see these, these larger demographic shifts, you know who doesn't want to read a 36-page ebook? My children. Right. My, my daughter is like a, an advertising major at a very good school and is going to be assistant marketing director for whatever here in a year. And she's not going to download shit that's 36 right. pages long. I can tell you right. that right now. Yeah. Uh, it ain't going to happen, right? So you're going to have to, instead of, instead of what we do now, which is take the big piece of content, break it into small pieces, I think we have to start making a bunch of small pieces and then combine them into a big piece of content, like literally flip the script upside down. I think yep. that's going to be the ultimate place that we end up at least as the, as the next phase. 
Yeah. And I think the hard thing for brands to get their head around in that sense is, is making sure that there's some kind of like narrative arc that goes with that or making sure that there's some kind of continuity between all those pieces of content because it's easy to fall into the trap of like, oh, okay, I go small and then I throw out- And it becomes a random acts of content. Right. Yeah. It it feels like a a whole, like a gunshot, you know, like scattershot as opposed to something that's intentional um, about its direction. Um, So I see, if I see mistakes, it's usually on one end of the spectrum. It's a lot of little stuff that has no through line or big things that just keep getting shoved out there as big things and wondering like why it's not getting that kind of traction. And those kind of assets, you know, have a real purpose, I think, for, to your point, certain kind of audience or someone who's at a certain point in a customer journey, but eventually you saturate that kind of demand and you have to invite people in with less commitment uh, through content in other ways. And it's an interesting but uncomfortable shift for a lot of companies to make. To that point, Amber, and, and kind of recognizing what, what Jay was talking about, about making the, the nuggets of, of wisdom digestible, I'm curious if there is a narrative arc to use your term that seems to work better on LinkedIn. When I think about LinkedIn and I think about traditional LinkedIn, I think of content and narrative and story arcs that are around career. They're very professional oriented. And my question for you is, is that still kind of the the narrative arc and the type of content that resonates well, or is it interesting and impactful to kind of do the 180 and be differentiated on your platform as we've seen LinkedIn evolve so much, especially after the Microsoft acquisition. Yeah. Well, I think you add like you answered your own question in there because it's the latter. I think, yes, our legacy has to do with careers and there's always going to be a subset of people on LinkedIn that come to further their career in one way or shape or form. But in a digital world, what that looks like, shaping your career, you know, empowering yourself as a professional, educating yourself, looks very different now than it, than it did a while ago. And the, humans are not that um, neatly drawn in a box. So you don't come to LinkedIn and put your professional hat on and then forget all the other ways you're a human. And a big mistake I think a lot of companies make is they try to be like, well, it's, it's LinkedIn. It's got to be very white collar, you know, professional. And the reality is it's not that way. Our audience is evolving and looking for a broader array of stuff that's inspirational, educational, personal, professional. As a matter of fact, personally, um, I do a fair bit of content about marketing on LinkedIn. And I do a lot of content around my project around imposter syndrome that I've been working on. That content gets so much more play than the stuff about marketing. And you would think that people would come to me like, oh, she's a marketing person. I want her to talk about marketing. But the, the squishier stuff, the more personal stuff, and things that maybe don't walk the traditional beaten path of careers and professional stuff are finding a home on LinkedIn way more than I think anybody expected. Yeah, I find the tone and tenor of what works on LinkedIn to be closer now to what happens on Medium than mm-hmm. than in other places, right? If you've got that strong narrative voice and you come at it from an individual perspective, even if you're creating content on behalf of a company or an organization, it tends to work better. Yeah, that's a really interesting parallel because I think Medium feels to me like a much more journalistic type mechanism, yeah. even if you're a, a more of a individual journalist type. Um, but LinkedIn has 
sometimes people have tried to think of it as just that square peg in the square hole. And there's a lot that works on our platform now that may not have five years ago. And the brands, I think, that are seeing some really good traction and success when building their audience are poking their nose outside of that box a little bit and trying something a little bit more per personal or journalistic feeling. And it's cool to see, but it, it for sure changes the game. Also changing the game, possibly LinkedIn Live. What can you tell our audience about best practices there? Yeah, so LinkedIn Live is still in very limited rollout. I get asked about it all the time and the team has been very deliberate about doing that slowly um, for infrastructure reasons and a bunch of things. But there's, there's only about a couple thousand people on the platform right now. Um, but what I can tell you that has worked, first of all, we're seeing some crazy numbers come out of just from a performance standpoint, people watching, people engaging. Um, so I, I, there's a lot of upside there, I think. But similarly, the, the people who are really succeeding with LinkedIn Live are not coming and doing talking head interviews like at CNBC. They're doing really casual, fun, very personal, um, really kind of gritty stuff in a way that is far more laid back, I think, than most people would have expected. But that's the stuff that's getting traction, you know, thinking about doing this podcast live or going to an event and doing kind of man on the street stuff or behind the scenes things or um, sitting. There's actually a great the guy who's the CEO of Novartis, which is a pharma company. And you'd never think of a pharma company in this light, but he does his like earnings calls with his executives sitting around a coffee table, having coffee over LinkedIn live. So he's getting real time feedback from the community and he's able to share a whole bunch of cool stuff, but it totally blows up the really buttoned up format you would expect for that kind of stuff. So I'm excited to see where people take it because it's showing some very early promise. That's a great example. And I will say for the record, we would be delighted to do social pros on LinkedIn live. Somebody just needs to give us access to the platform. If only we knew somebody at LinkedIn hmm. who had been on the show who possibly could, could make that happen. But I don't know. I digress. If you feel any better, I only got access to it last week and I asked for it like four months ago. So, you know, shoemaker's kids or whatever, but yeah, I'll see if I can sense. put in a word with the big man Thank over you. there. Thank you. Yeah. Clearly, if you've got great content, we've been talking about that, that content still needs to get seen. And as LinkedIn gets more and more popular as a platform, as Adam mentioned, lots of conversations amongst his clients and mine as well about LinkedIn headed into 2020. Of course, that creates more content, same number of eyeballs or a growing number of eyeballs. You end up with an algorithm problem the same way that Facebook experiences, the same way that Instagram experiences, and to a somewhat lesser extent, the same way that Twitter experiences. The algorithm is everything. What tips do you have for Social Pros listeners, Amber, for, for playing the algorithm game on LinkedIn? And, and how might they think about that differently from the algorithm games they're playing elsewhere? Um, so the interesting thing about the algorithm um, you know, lots of people like to speculate about like what the algorithm does and doesn't and penalizes and punishes and all that kind of stuff. Our engineering team will actually tell you verbatim exactly how the algorithm works. So if you go to, I think it's engineering.linkedin.com, um, maybe I can give you the real URL, but they have a blog and back. We'll on, link it up on the show notes, guys. We'll go to socialpros.com, look for this episode. We'll make sure that the link is there. Yeah, perfect. I'll set, um, so there's, on June 25th, I think it was, the engineering team wrote a blog about the changes that they had made to the algorithm most recently. And there's three things that they prioritize when it all comes down to it. One is content that they consider is creating 
engagement. And some of that can be passive engagement. So that can be a like, a click, a share, um, or a comment, but they also look at dialogue and dialogue is and conversation are sort of different in that they're looking for strings of content in, in the comments. So people talking back and forth, comments that are substantive, not just nice posts, but questions, comments, um, conversation. And then they're looking at relevance. So who is interacting with that content? Is it people right within your first degree connections? Or if you're a brand, the people who are following your company page, um, is that spilling over a couple of degrees or more people coming in? So they're looking at those aspects. So all the little tips and tricks of like, oh, LinkedIn punishes external links or gee, you should put the link in the comments. All of that's really a myth. Most of it is, is the content engaging? That's what's going to get surfaced first because our chief purpose is to create value in the feed, whether that takes a nanosecond or 10 minutes. So unlike some platforms, time on site is not as important to us. It's do you find what you want in that moment so that you will come back again because you've found that content to be really valuable. So the best thing you can do is create relevant, interesting, engaging content that gets your community talking. That's the stuff that the algorithm is going to favor. Jay, uh, Amber just gave us the, the keys to the kingdom there. Engagement, dialogue, relevance. Those are the, the three keys to, uh, to success on, uh, on, on LinkedIn platform. That is, that is great. Amber, you've already shared with us uh, kind of the example with Novartis and how they're using uh, LinkedIn Live. Um, and I would curious, just as you look at your platform overall, and even maybe some of the uh, clients and customers that you work with, anybody that you're, you're proud of the work that you're doing, customers or clients that are truly getting engagement, getting that true dialogue and, and not just kind of innocuous post and having content that's highly relevant that, that you're proud of and that you'd, you'd like to share with us. Yeah, there's a few, there's, a, there's always a, a lot of com companies that are doing this really well. One of my favorites, STEM to Stern, the one company I think that is doing a lot of things really well all at the same time is Adobe. And that probably won't surprise anybody if you've watched sort of their rise over the last 10 years as, as marketing savvy people. But they have a really good blend of both their marketing brand and their consumer brand, their business brand and their talent brand, you know, looking for the best and brightest talent to come work at Adobe. They're doing a really great job of blending paid and organic content, creating little stuff, big stuff and everything in between, diversifying their media. They just really check all the boxes. Um, Another company that does it really well from a, especially from an employer brand standpoint is Netflix. And the thing that's great about Netflix is they're great at a lot of things content wise, but their content on LinkedIn, you would expect them to be like all in on video. And it's not that way at all. A lot of their posts are two or three line text and they're asking questions and they're sometimes offering like really silly comparisons, like, would you rather do this or rather do that? And their audience is crazy engaged there. So they really have the art of conversation down. Um, and the other company that's maybe a little less sexy for my B2B friends 
um, EY or formerly Ernst and Young on the professional services side, they do a beautiful job of branding across the platform. They have this kind of consistent brand continuity that comes through in everything that they do. And I use, I hold them up as an example, a lot of a company that's doing it well. Thanks very much. Those are great examples. I'm sure Adam's like, God, Adobe, those guys are always <laughs> Damn up, in my face. up in my face all the time. Uh, one of the things that we wrote about together in the now revolution all those years ago is a, about team, team structure and, and getting everybody kind of on the bus and, and sort of enterprise social and enterprise content. Now that you have this opportunity to work with a lot of enterprise companies and interface with their teams, what advice would you have for those listening who work in the enterprise and who are trying to figure out how to right size or right structure their content teams, their social teams? We get so many questions about this at Convince and Convert. You know, literally, I feel like sometimes half our job is like, you know, drawing out org charts for people because they're not really sure who to report to who. They just don't, it's like all new, right? Especially now in this rise of video. Like, well, now we got a bunch of videographers. Who do they, where do they sit, right? So uh, what, what are you seeing from your side? Yeah, I'm seeing it arise. Um, and I, I think this has probably happened in the last four or five years of sort of editors in chief or people who sit in a more editorial oversight role. And their goal is to, again, provide some sort of narrative continuity and within that, that organization, then the production teams are different. So you might have people who do social, you might have people who do broader content development, you might have video, you might have a podcast team, but the editor in chief sort of oversees all of that. And it's really interesting because I've encountered a number of people in corporate roles who come from journalism backgrounds or editorial backgrounds who are stepping into these roles because they understand how to get story done through multiple media forms. Um, and it's a really cool, I think, convergence of that that I'm starting to see. Increasingly, too, I'm seeing companies that were traditionally sticking content kind of in the bucket with social, realizing that content is marketing. The backbone of modern marketing is content. So people who are in marketing director roles or um, higher, more senior roles have content chops. So it's sort of baked into what they're doing already. And it's not considered a separate discipline, which makes my heart sing. It's like, that's the way it finally. should have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Finally, it's only taken us like 10 years. Um, those are still for sure the exceptions, but I'm starting to see that happen. And um, you know, you and I thought it was going to happen a decade ago, but hey, whatever. <laughs> Better late well, than never. I mean, for real, like I, I think that book, if we republish it today, is probably more true, more accurate, and more necessary right now than it was. When Do you know how many people have asked me for like a second edition of that? It's unreal. I'm so yeah, I, we should do it. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing, Amber and, and Jay, and it, it, it's, it's refreshing to me as well, because I think that's, again, what it, it really should be about and, and less about kind of where in the organization you sit and what type of content you're trying to, uh, to spend. So I, I really like that. One kind of area or group, I think that's represented by many of the people uh, who listen to our Social Pros podcast are the customer service people. And certainly we've seen platforms like Twitter, 
Really, and, and Facebook Messenger really try to over-index with social customer service. And I'm curious, kind of any strategies that you're seeing in terms of your customers looking at LinkedIn to provide similar services or provide that different kind of relationship with their customers? Yeah, that's an interesting take. And it's, believe it or not, I still think that the more what I would call the shorter form real-time platforms like Twitter are still dominating that the social customer service game. I don't see as many people with that as a pure play goal for what they're doing, but I do see it baked into them knowing that it's a thing they have to care about. So for people who are content creators and building content programs on LinkedIn, I get a lot of questions around, well, how responsive do we need to be in the comments? Does somebody need to be paying attention to that? Do we need to be commenting back? Um, I don't think our audience base is as conditioned to use LinkedIn for a customer service tool. So I don't see it as much um, driven that way. But the good news is that the, the companies I work with are aware that they can't just like drop a bomb and walk away. They're aware of the fact that stewarding that content and the ensuing conversation comes with a responsibility to connect those dots between the team that's putting out the content and people who may have questions or concerns about other things, especially in very sensitive industries like healthcare, pharmaceuticals, um, places where those kinds of comments spill all over um, the platforms, they know that there needs to be a direct line between the social and content teams and our customer service teams. So I think you'll see it less on LinkedIn intentionally, but you will see it there almost as a matter of necessity. Yeah, and, and who knows? Consumer expectations tend to change. At, at one point, not that long ago, Instagram would never have been thought of as a potential customer service channel, but now it most definitely sure. is, especially for particular brands, right? If you're DTC or your your fashion or other brands, like yeah, that's 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 your home base now. Uh, yeah. So who who knows? Yeah, yeah. it's pretty interesting. Amber, I don't know this to be true. I haven't checked our master social pros database of nearly 400 guests, but I think you are the first flute performance major uh, to appear <laughs> on the program. Uh, I, that is quite a journey. And I'd like you to talk about that a little bit because sometimes people who come to social media as a career don't come to it from a linear perspective. They kind of fell into it or something weird happened to them and here they are. And then they feel bad because they didn't go to school for that or whatever. Talk a little bit about your journey. Oh my God. Okay. So for all y'all listening, I for sure did not go to school for that. <laughs> um, I went to school for music and my intention was either to perform or to teach or some combination of the above. And as music school wore on, I realized I did not want to go out in the world and audition myself to death. So um, when the opportunity arose, I actually stepped from music school into working for the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra behind the scenes on the business side. And I contemplated doing a master's in music business for a while um, and never got around to that. But the upshot was it put me um, my first job was in development um, for the uninitiated and nonprofits. Development is the fundraising side of the world. And in nonprofits, often there is not a separate marketing team. The development team does a lot of the marketing type work. So I learned marketing in the trenches that way. And nonprofits led to corporate gigs. Corporate gigs led to doing some freelance work. And that's how I got to be um, 
connected with Radian 6, which was my first technology company that I worked with, helping them develop content. But it was all stuff I learned as part of the business. And if you treat marketing as sort of an essential element to any business's kind of go-to-market strategy, it really makes a lot of sense. I didn't, you know, I didn't read Kotler. I didn't like sit around and do all this like really important pricing four P's work in marketing. I learned how to market by listening to my customers and trying to figure out how I could deliver a brand uh, promise that is what they wanted. So heck no, you don't have to like get the fancy. I don't even have, a. by the way, other big secret, I don't actually have a degree. Um, I stopped about half a, a semester shy for very, for personal reasons, but I never graduated. So it goes to show that careers are never linear and mine has certainly not been. Um, but my willingness to sort of dig in and roll up my sleeves and learn as much as I could, I think was the differentiating factor between me and the guy who has the Harvard business degree. Not to mention the fact that time at Radiant 6, Amber was the community manager for Radiant 6 for quite some time and still, in my estimation, probably the best community manager I've ever seen for any business in the history of the internet. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, what a huge compliment. Yeah, well, there's nothing like learning that stuff in the trenches, right? And uh, being right there and dealing with people who are happy, sad, angry, and every mix in between and understanding (laughs) what it's like to sort of get a a company from startup to exit. I mean, there were so many lessons in that that were crazy, but um, there's there's no substitute for real world experience. I can tell you that. The much ballyhooed and often requested version 2.0 of the Now Revolution remains on the cutting room floor for now, but you are working on a new book. Tell everybody about it. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's slow going, but I am working on a new book. Um, and there's the working title TBD, but I'm doing a lot of research and writing around imposter syndrome and especially imposter syndrome as it relates to our very hyper-connected world and how easy it is now to marinate in self-doubt and fall victim to imposter syndrome when you're comparing yourself not just to you know your classmate or your neighbor, but every bloody human on the internet um, with an account and a bunch of filters. So, it, you know, and also being a parent of a 12-year-old girl coming up in a digital native sort of environment it's just, it's, it's been a really interesting journey to think about how self-doubt creeps in. So I'm writing a lot about that and um, no, no published date to give you on that one yet. I got to finish the proposal first, but, but I'm working on it. It's getting there. Uh, you're exactly right. It's, it's a real problem. And as somebody who's got uh, kids that are 21 and 18, both in university, when they are feeling blue, my advice is always the same, which is stop opening Instagram. Yeah. Yep. And it's amazing. Um, it is amazing what a tonic that is for the soul. Look, I, I have the exact same problem. People will yep. say, oh, Jay, have accomplished this or whatever. Sure. But every time I open Instagram or frankly, LinkedIn, sometimes I'm yep. like, man, this person's doing better. I, yep. I need to get better at this. I need to work harder at that. I'm, I'm missing out on this. There's a speaking gig that should have been mine instead of that person's, yep. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is poison. It is uh, endless it's hard. too. It's hard. No, it's like you're, you're totally sometimes hard right. to do this. It's sometimes hard to do this show. Actually, here we are telling people how to be better at it when I know that there's an element of it that is actually destructive. And yeah. I've done this show now for eight years, or whatever. I do wrestle with it sometimes, right? It's like, is this show part of the problem or part of the solution? Um, but as you know, I, I feel like on the balance, Adam and I are doing a service to the community. And so that's what we'll keep doing it. But it is a little hard sometimes. 
But I think this is the balance that you have to strike. So I think there's a lot of people who are going to be shocked when they hear you say that you've doubted yourself or you look online and worry about what you've accomplished compared to somebody else. Because objectively speaking, from the outside, it's easy to look at Jay Bear as the bellwether. Like, that's what we should all be aspiring to do. And I went through a huge crisis of confidence when my business failed. And I had to claw my way like back, kicking and screaming to find some sense of personal peace and that journey has taught me so much about why the internet is on one hand super powerful and on the other can be super toxic. So learning how I've navigated that, I'm, all I really want to do is kind of share what I've learned and hopefully let other people know that they're not alone in feeling that and that you don't have to be a slave to that environment. So true. Unrelated front, uh, Social Bros listeners, I, I don't remember the exact episode recording sequence, but either right before or right after this episode, you're, you're going to see a show from us uh, featuring Lori Bird, and it's all about self-care for social media professionals and how we end up spending way too much time, way too emotion, uh, much emotional energy, and, and it's sort of like, you know, social media manager is like modern coal miner <laughs> in some yeah. circumstances, right? It's not the easiest gig in the world, as a lot of you people listening know, so we're going to talk all about that uh, here here on the Social Pros Podcast. Amber, I'm going to ask you the two questions that uh, Ab and I ask each and every one of our guests here on the program. The first is what one tip would you give somebody looking to become a social pro? Don't obsess about the social part of the pro. Um, for me, the best experience I have to, to apply to whatever emerging channels show up is to learn the business inside and out. Get as curious as you can about how your business makes money, how your business wins, how your business is different than somebody else's, because the social channels are just how you translate that story. The more endemic business knowledge you have, the smarter you will be when any new tool, tactic, or platform comes down the pike. If you could do a video call with any living person, who would it be? Bonus points if it's a flautist. It is not a flautist. <laughs> oh, um, man. The show's ruined. Uh, sorry. I, I could pick a... And actually, you know, believe it or not, no flute player says flautist. We say oh. flutist. Just as it's a flutist. Oh. Interesting. Is that true? Well, Jesus. Yes. No, and, this is why, and this is why I feel so inadequate. It's those kind of things. <laughs> flautist sounds so terribly pretentious. It's like... It also sounds like a thing you could get a taco about. You can get, you can get a two-for-one <laughs> ground beef flautist. Totally. Um, yeah. totally. They have those at the mall, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah right. Um, but anyway, uh, my, you know, I'm afraid my answer is actually going to be a little bit cliche, but it's Michelle Obama. And it's not because she was the first lady necessarily. I'm a, I'm a fourth generation Chicagoan. So the work that she and her husband have done here, um, even just from a community perspective, has always put her squarely in my sights as somebody that I not only admire, but she just seems like a whole hell of a lot of fun. So I feel like kicking back on Skype with like a glass of wine um, and some girl talk would be the best balm for my soul ever. So I would pick her in a heartbeat. Isn't she like right down the street from you? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're neighbors. Like, we're well, I mean, you're both in Chicago, which is something, right? Like you can yeah. just like pop over and be like, hey, What's I've been thinking, girl? I brought wine. <laughs> And yeah, they're, they're, um, they're not, she's certainly closer to me than she probably is to most of you most of the time. I have no idea how much time they actually spend in Chicago these days, but yeah, she's, it's, well, when she starts really hanging out with Amber, it's going to be more. more. I know. Right. Well, I mean, she should, <laughs> who wouldn't want to hang Absolutely. out with me? Absolutely. 
Amber, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and for imparting so much wisdom to our audience about all things LinkedIn and all things content and social as well. We really appreciate you taking it, taking the opportunity. Uh, I appreciate being here. It's always fun to hang out with you. On behalf of Adam Brown from Salesforce Marketing Cloud, I am Jay Baer from Convince and Convert. Don't forget each and every episode, including this great one with Amber Nesland. You can get it at socialpros.com where we have the transcript of the show, the show notes, all the key kind of quotes, things like that, plus the links that were mentioned here in this episode and links to our great resources offered by our sponsors. Of course, you can also get the show all the places that you get your delicious audio programming, uh, Apple, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Please do that. Tell your friends, subscribe, all those things. We really appreciate each and every one of you social pros listeners. Thanks a lot for being here. This is what I hope is your favorite podcast in the whole world. This has been the Social Pros Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.